salt and light. You are the salt of earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will be will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Murder. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary, who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still within, with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Adultery. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Thank you. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray for the uh, children of our church as they're taught uh, in Sunday school that you would be really implanting the gospel in their minds and their hearts, <clears throat> which would bear great fruit in the years to come. We pray for ourselves that uh, we would be uh, not only informed but tran transformed by your word this morning. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. There are some kinds of behaviours which most people in most cultures agree are just plain wrong. It's not always the case, so is it? There have been times in some societies where things which are normally considered to be wrong uh, do gain some traction and some acceptability. There are times in some societies where it's been considered to be okay to persecute particular types of people, even to kill certain types of people. But uh, those situations are the exception. Uh, they're not generally the rule. Most people and most societies, whether Christian or not, reject behaviours such as murder, adultery, theft and telling lies in court. Uh, you don't actually have to be a Christian. You don't have to even believe in God to understand that these things are just plain wrong. Because what they do is they, they are actions which take away from a person something which rightfully belongs to them. Uh, in the case of murder, uh, it, it takes away their life. In the case of adultery, it takes away their uh, privilege and rights in marriage. In the case of theft, it takes away their possession. In case of false testimony, it can take away their reputation and their, and their freedom even, which are all things which we, we value, don't we? Uh, we value them for ourselves. And so it makes sense. We, we want to live in a society where we are protected from being deprived of uh, these things. And when we see someone else being deprived of those things which rightfully belong to them, we, we have compassion and we feel for them. That's why our hearts ache and our hearts ought to be aching uh, even now for people who are trying to live in certain parts of Iraq and Somalia where terrorist groups have taken over and where uh, there is no good order in the society because uh, people, uh, theft and murder and, uh, and rape and things have been uh, treated as being uh, acceptable. They've become the norm. And so when people look at the Ten Commandments, there are some of the commands, maybe not the first couple, but most of the commands that most people in most societies, in most parts of the world, except um, thou shalt not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. People love these commands because a society where people are, are held accountable for murder and for adultery and theft and perjury, well, that's much better society to live in than a society where these things are just given free reign. I'm sure that is still true, uh, even in the case of adultery. Our, our media wants to us to think uh, that adultery is more acceptable, that it's not as bad as what, um, what we might otherwise uh, consider it to be, but that's just the media. Uh, speaking of someone who sometimes has to pick up the pieces, I can tell you, our society and people, non-Christians in our community, do not believe that adultery is okay, <laughs> especially those on the receiving end. We value a society where murder, adultery, theft, 
and perjury are considered to be wrong. Now, as Christians, when we reflect on these commands, we see that the good ordering of society is not the only reason why we should obey them. Uh, when I was a student at university many, many, many years ago, uh, I had to study some law subjects. And I remember those days. I remember the, uh, the countless hours uh, in my little private part of the law library poring over uh, legislation and, and uh, copious case law uh, books and so on. And as I reflect on those days of studying these legal subjects, the kind of words which come to my mind to describe how I felt about that would be, okay, one word would be important because these things are important, but, but a few other words come to mind as well, like dry, sleepy, I want to go home. <laughs> these are the kinds... Of, now, in Psalm, Psalm 19... The psalmist describes God's law. And they're not the kind of words that come to his mind. Uh, the kind of words that come to his mind in Psalm 19 are words like, more valuable than gold, more precious than silver, sweeter than honey. And, and get this, uh, he, he says that the, the God's laws revive the soul. God's laws have the power to actually uh, nourish and to strengthen and to revive our very souls. Now, why is that the case? Well, friends, uh, if you open up your Bibles at Exodus chapter 20, I'm going to be looking at just four of the commands today. And uh, we're going to uh, look at the last of the commands next week and we'll wrap up um, this particular section of God's Word. But uh, in, in Exodus chapter 20, verses 13 through to 16, the reason why God's law has this power to revive our souls is because inbuilt into these commands is the very character of God himself, the character of our creator. Now, how do we see that? Well, I'm going to just go through the commands and, uh, and flesh that out, and then we'll draw some implications from that. First of all, in verse 13, we're told, uh, you shall not murder. Okay? Now, in this command, what we see, uh, the, the opposite of, of murder is life, isn't it? And God we know to be the God who is the giver of life. Um, Genesis chapter 2 makes that very clear that uh, it is he who has given us life. It is he who uh, breathes life into, into, our, our, into us. It is he uh, in whom we depend for every breath of life. And he has given us life. We are the pinnacle of his creation. If we are uh, made in God's image, that we are actually at the apex of uh, his uh, creativity. He's made us in relationship with himself. He's made us in his image. He has given us life. And so for someone to intentionally rob someone of their life without just cause, because there is just cause, we see in the scriptures, but for someone to intentionally rob someone of their life, well, that's the exact opposite of God, isn't it? whose character it is to 
not take life, but to give life. Now, secondly, in verse 14, we're told, uh, you shall not commit adultery. And the converse of that is that God is faithful. Uh, Israel, uh, we've seen in Exodus, has already been learning something of the faithfulness of God's character, that uh, God has made promises to Abraham and in drawing them out of slavery in Egypt and guiding them towards the promised land, that God is proving that he is faithful to these promises that he made long ago. Now in the Bible, um, marriage between a man and a woman, which is the only form of marriage, marriage is, is like a model of the relationship that exists between God and his people. It's a covenantal relationship. And we see that in books like Hosea, uh, where uh, the marriage of uh, Hosea and, and Gomer is a metaphor for the relationship between uh, Israel and God. We see that in uh, Ephesians chapter 5 as well. And when someone commits adultery, they are not only betraying their spouse profoundly, but they are refusing to be like God, who is faithful. Now, there's a whole sermon series we could have on adultery. Uh, <coughs> I'll sum up that sermon series in one sentence. Uh, as enticing as it may seem, you might as well drink poison. That's what adultery is. But what, when a person commits adultery, they're not only betraying their spouse, but they are actually showing that they are refusing to be like God. God has faithfully rescued Israel and he has brought them into an intimate relationship with himself. To commit adultery is to be the exact opposite of God whose character is marked by faithfulness. That's his character. Now thirdly in verse 15, you shall not steal. Well, what's the opposite of theft? It's generosity, isn't it? Generosity. God is generous. Now, in a sense, all sin against another person is theft because uh, when we sin against someone, we, we take from them something which belongs to them. It might be their life. It might be their reputation. It might be their possessions. could be their marriage or whatever. Uh, there's plenty of examples of that in the Bible. And I'll draw your attention to one particular lustful evening when King David stole from a man named Uriah. Uh, what is it that he stole on that particular? He stole his, his wife, didn't he? Uh, saw Bathsheba having a bath and he was enticed and he fell to that. And you know the story. And you know that one sin leads to another. And so later after Bathsheba became pregnant and David had to try to cover his tracks here, he stole something else from Uriah, didn't he? What is it that he stole from Uriah the second time? He stole his, his life. Not his wife, but his life. His very life. Now listen to how God rebuked David. You might want to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12 uh, in your Bibles. and 2 Samuel chapter 12 you'll find on page 222. Listen to how God rebuked him through the prophet Nathan. Nathan told him a story and he hooked David 
and then he reeled him in. I said, David, I'll tell you a story. There's this, this fellow, he was, a, he was a poor man and uh, he didn't own very much, but he had a neighbour who was very rich and some people came to visit the neighbour and the neighbour had to be hospitable to his visitors and said to put on a barbecue and so he, what he, he went and stole a ewe from his poor neighbour, uh, slaughtered that ewe and put that one on the barbie and fed that. What do you think about that, David? And David was outraged. How dare he do that? That is dreadful. This man deserves to be... And Nathan looks him in the eye, he eyeballs him and he says, David, that man is you. You are that man. In verses 7 and 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 12, Then Nathan said to David, You are this man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. This is what God said to David. He says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. What had God done for David? He gave to David. He gave to David. Now there are of course rare cases where a person steals food because they are starving and in that case justice needs to be tempered with mercy but normally when we are tempted to steal, for example from the tax department, very middle class kind of, kind of theft or steal from our employer or whatever, what is the reason behind it ultimately? The reason ultimately must be that we are not content with that which the generous God has already given us. We are not grateful for his generosity towards us and so we steal because we want more. We don't think God has given us enough. Just like David. He wasn't appreciative. He wasn't grateful for what God had given him and he was prepared to sin and to <coughs> commit adultery and to murder for the sake of more. We are not grateful for his generosity towards us and we show, therefore, that we do not want to be like God because God is generous. Now, remember the uh, church in Ephesus <coughs> in the New Testament? There was a whole bunch of people who'd come to know Christ who were in that congregation. Some of the people who'd come to know Christ were, uh, well, they, they, they were thieves. Uh, they, were, they were robbers. They, they stole things and they came to know Jesus as their Lord and their Saviour. Now, how therefore did the gospel change their lives? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul speaks to the thieves in the congregation. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to do three things. Number one, I want you to stop stealing. <laughs> That's a good start. Number two, I want you to go out and get a job. And number three, with the money that you earn from your job, I want you to be generous. I want you to actually work hard so that you've got money, not so you can take more from others, so that now you can actually give money away to people who are in need. It's a radical change, isn't it? From being a person who's not content with what God has given them to being a person who's prepared to give away. It's a bit like God, isn't it? It's 
It's a bit like the character of God. It's a great change, terrific change. That's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. To steal is the exact opposite of God, whose character it is to be generous. Now, fourthly, <clears throat> you shall not um, uh, bear false testimony against your neighbour. The converse of that, of course, is that God is truthful. Uh, <clears throat> remember back in um, Exodus chapter 18, remember when Moses' uh, father-in-law Jethro came to visit him and to check out how things were going? And uh, Jethro observed how Moses was spending his day and he observed that Moses was spending far too much time working as a judge. Remember that? People were coming to Moses. He'd set up his court and he would hear the complaints against one another. He would make the judgments. And Jethro said, mate, you're going to wear yourself out. What you need to do is to appoint some other judges to do this kind of work for you. And what this tells us is that uh, there was already a judicial system which was, uh, which was happening in Israel amongst God's people. Now, <clears throat> here in this command, what we have is the language of the courtroom. Uh, in uh, you shall not bear false testimony, false witness against your neighbour. In Israel, the testimony of witnesses was very important. Uh, when an accusation was made, two or three witnesses was the norm. If you're going to make an accusation against a person, you needed to come up with the witnesses. And the witnesses needed to be truthful because if they weren't, then the justice system didn't work properly, <clears throat> as it uh, is also the case today. <clears throat> Friends, God is a God of truth. If God lied about himself, if God lied about his plans for the world, <clears throat> if God lied about his son, the Lord Jesus, then we would be in a right mess, wouldn't we? Uh, it would be a dreadful situation. But God, by his character, <clears throat> is truth. And therefore, when we say things against our neighbour which are false, then not only do we damage our neighbour, it also shows that we actually don't want to be like God. We've got no interest in having the character of God for ourselves. It's the exact opposite of God whose character it is to be truthful. Now, it's very possible that someone might look at these commands and tick every box and say, I can do that. I'm okay because I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've never stolen anything. And I've never actually said anything false to the detriment of my neighbour. It's possible. I haven't met too many people who could say that, but <clears throat> it's possible. Rich young ruler. Remember the young guy came to Jesus and uh, <clears throat> he wanted to know, how he, you know what he needed to do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said, you know, have you obeyed all of the commandments? He said, yep, I've, I've, I can, I've ticked off every commandment ever, ever since I was a kid. I've obeyed the Ten Commandments. And in one sense, that might have been true. What about you? Have you obeyed all the commandments? Have you obeyed the commandment to not have your mobile phone switched on in church? <laughs> it's probably my phone, I don't know. Anyone ever murdered anybody? Put up your hand if you've murdered someone. 
I actually met a guy once who had murdered someone and, and had gotten away from it. Everyone knew he was guilty and I was introduced to him and shake hands with the man who murdered someone. It's an interesting situation. No, we haven't murdered anybody. That's good. Uh, does that therefore mean that we all have the character of God? Hmm, that might be a little bit of a different story. I won't ask about adultery or theft or false testimony. The heart of the matter is always character. That's always God's character. That's, that's the heart of the issue. Now in Matthew chapter 5, which Ravinda read for us earlier on, thank you Ravinda, uh, Jesus was like, a, was like a surgeon. He was surgical in the way that he uh, used words to, to penetrate the surface of our lives and to expose the underlying reality. And that reality is that our character is actually not very much like God's character at all. What is it that drives a person to murder? Well, how about hatred, jealousy, anger? Ever experienced any of those emotions and attitudes? What about adultery? What, what is it that drives a person to adultery? Well, in David's case, it was just lust, wasn't it? Ever lusted after someone that you're not married to? Have a look at what Jesus says in chapter 5 of Matthew, if you'd like to turn that open. Matthew chapter 5. And uh, verses 27 and 28. There he says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See that? Anyone who looks at a woman has already done it, has already shown the underlying reality. Uh, that exists in the person's heart. You know, we prefer to try to narrow down commands so as to specifically define exactly what might constitute adultery or murder or theft or something like that so we can kind of include certain actions and exclude other actions. We have a tendency to do that. A person might say, well, you know, someone might... Uh, say that if, if, if a married person has total intimacy with another person who they're not married to, oh, that's, that's adultery. And they might say, well, you know, we didn't actually go the full way. <laughs> I mean, we only met sort of privately in a secluded location and we only cuddled and, and kissed and, and uh, you know, so we didn't really commit adultery, did we? I'm not guilty of that. Well, that's what people try to do. Jesus, rather than try to narrow down the definition, what does he do? He, he, just, he just breaks it all open, doesn't he? He opens wide the whole definition of what it means to uh, commit adultery. And in, so, in doing so, he exposes the reality of our character. Also, in Jesus' day, there were some men who claimed that they didn't commit adultery, although they actually did have relations with a number of women, um, but technically they argued they didn't commit adultery because what they'd do is they were married to someone 
and they found someone else that they liked more, so they divorced their wife and they married another woman. And when they found someone else who they wanted to sleep with, they divorced her and serial adultery, but they say, no, no, no we, we issued the certificate of divorce, we've never committed adultery. Well, Jesus actually deals with that in, in a certain way in verses 31 through to 33. Well, some people might say, well, I, I never gave false testimony uh, because although they said something untrue about their neighbour to their neighbour's detriment, well, they didn't do so under oath. Uh, and Jesus exposes that in verses 33 to 37. You see, they had developed a system which meant that uh, uh, you, you, could, you could say oaths and if you said an oath, then that meant that what you were going to say well, was true. But if you didn't say it under oath, then well, it didn't need to be so, quite so true. <laughs> a bit like core promises versus non-core promises. <laughs> You know, Jesus uh, breaks that completely open and um, he actually says, well, you know what? Uh, <clears throat> why do you need to say an oath in the first place? How about you don't need to say an oath? How about every word that you say is true? That uh, you let your yes be yes and your no be no and that's it. Right? Now... A lot of people say, I love Matthew chapter 5. You know, Sermon on the Mount, fantastic, terrific stuff. Just, just love it. But it really should make us feel very uncomfortable. Uh, just like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus uh, confident in his own righteousness, Matthew chapter 5 ought to leave us feeling guilty and ought to leave us feeling actually very unlike the character of God. And so it should, because that's actually the purpose of the law. Um, have you ever been looking at an object and you thought, gee, that's white, and then you've put it alongside something which actually is white, and you go, oh, actually, it's quite grey. <laughs> that's a bit like us and um, our character and God's character, isn't it? That uh, God's law tells us how, how righteous God is so that when we match ourselves up against it, we can see how unrighteous we actually are. I think that I am righteous until I see what true righteousness actually looks like. And it's for that reason that Paul in Romans chapter 3 can say that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're not going to know that you've fallen short of the glory of God until you can see something of the glory of God. And then you see, oh, I've fallen so far short of that. So far short. In fact, God's law helps us to realise that what we need more than anything else is a saviour. Take a look at the, on your sheets there, there's a key verse from Romans chapter 3. And I just want to read this for you. From Romans chapter 3, Paul says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to, to which the law and the prophets testify. And this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The prophets and the law testify 
to the true righteousness which is found in Jesus. In fact, in the book of Galatians, Paul says that the purpose of the law, uh, the law is like a tutor, which is actually there to lead us to the Saviour, to lead us to Christ. And Paul here goes on to say that we can be made right with God freely, not because we have the character of God, or not because we just need to clean up our act just a little bit. No, we can be made right with God freely because of God's great love in sending Jesus to die and to be punished in our place so that the righteous was punished for the unrighteous so that we might become the righteousness of God, he says elsewhere. Friends, the law of God should strip our pride, expose our guilt and drive us to the foot of the cross where we find mercy and forgiveness and a new life. Washed clean, washed white by the blood of the Lamb. To the foot of the cross where all of our hatred, where all of our unfaithfulness, where all of our thanklessness, where all of our untruthfulness is dealt with. Because the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Now, of course, the implications of all of this are enormous. Because now, instead of hatred and anger, we want to put on love and reconciliation. And instead of lust and unfaithfulness, we want to be committed in our marriages. Instead of unthankfulness and theft, we want to be overflowing with, with generosity. And instead of lies about our neighbour, we want to be people of integrity, of truth and of justice. And why? Well, not because we're just trying to follow a certain set of rules and regulations, rather because we now know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel and our hearts have been changed by the gift of the Spirit so that we don't just want to obey laws, we now want to exhibit in our lives the very character of God because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Make sense? Why don't we pray? Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the fact that he did perfectly obey your law, and the fact that he, Father, is the righteous one, the only truly righteous one, was prepared to exchange his righteousness for our unrighteousness so that we could be made righteous in your sight. Father, we thank you for that. We pray, Lord God, that you, in gratitude for your spirit, we pray that we would continue to put off the old self, that we would put, continue to put on the new self, which has been made anew in Jesus. Help us, Lord God, to be people who love life, people who uh, are, uh, are truthful, people who are generous, people who are faithful, people who exhibit your character because of what you've done for us. And may you be glorified through us, we pray.
In Jesus' name. Amen.